Advisor Innovation is sponsored by LPL. As financial advice continues to evolve, LPL is at the forefront. Whether it's growing your RIA or building an independent practice, advisors can pick the business model, services, technology, and product mix that best meets their clients' needs. As a top wealth management firm and a top three RIA custodian, LPL is 100% dedicated to advisor success. We look forward to learning how they can help you build your tomorrow today. For more information and show notes, visit go.lpl.com backslash advisor innovation. Okay, greetings, everybody, and welcome to the Advisor Innovations Podcast. I'm David Armstrong, the Executive Director of WealthManagement.com, and this is the podcast where I have the chance to talk with folks moving the wealth management industry forward in interesting and innovative directions. And today, I'm thrilled to have this chance to talk to Rick Ferry. As many of you know, Rick is a longtime practicing financial advisor. He's a prolific writer with maybe some seven, maybe eight books on investing and retirement planning. And recently, a pretty outspoken critic around advisor compensation and what it means to be a true fiduciary advisor for clients. So, Rick, thanks a lot for joining us. Well, thank you for having me on the show today. Uh, so, before we get into some of the arguments you've been making lately, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, you know your your writings and 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 your arguments. But uh, for the folks who don't know your background, it's pretty extensive in this industry. You've grown an advisory business. You've sold an advisory business. Uh, you've taken you know quite a few spots in in, in the industry. Just give us a quick sketch of where you came from and how you got to where you are today. Well, I'll be happy to. I'll, I won't take much time. Uh, I graduated from college, business school at the University of Rhode Island in 1980. And I uh, went into the Marine Corps as an officer and went to flight school and was a fighter pilot, carrier-based uh, fighter pilot for about eight years. Uh, stayed in the reserves, uh, but got out in 1988 and went to the brokerage industry because at the time I thought that that's what you did if you wanted to be a financial advisor and an, an investment uh, portfolio manager. And uh, went to work for a company called Kidder Peabody. I uh, started working with them and it wasn't too long into that where I realized that it really wasn't so much about portfolio management and finding good investments. It was all about how much revenue you're going to make for the firm. So I never had any discussions with my managers. I, I ended up going from Kidder Peabody to Smith Barney. And, uh, and that, that was 1994. But I, I don't recall once in the 10 years that I was in the brokerage industry ever having a discussion with a, anybody uh, at, at, at either firm about how well my clients were performing. Uh, the only discussions I ever had was how much revenue are you going to bring into the company and how are you going to do it? And here are the products that we'd like you to promote and uh, so forth. And we'll give you, uh, you know, a little extra money if you did this and or a little side trip if you did that. I mean, that, that's the way it was back then. But um, that did not appeal to me. Uh, I had achieved my Charter Financial Analyst designation. I was uh, finishing up a Master's of Science in Finance. And I come to the realization that the brokerage industry wasn't exactly a investment advisory industry. It was a, it was a distribution channel for products. And so, and which is very important, by the way, I mean, companies that come public need to get distribution. And so, you know, what Wall Street does is, is very important. But when it comes to your clients, if, if you're going to sit on the side of the table of the clients trying to do what's best for them, it's probably not the best place to be. You don't get the best information. I, guarantee you that. So I left there in uh, 1999 and started my own investment company. And here I had discovered index funds and index funds investing uh, through John Bogle. I listened to him give a lecture in 1994, excuse me, 1996. 
and then read his book, Bogolan Mutual Funds. And I had an epiphany. I had an aha moment. And I said, this is what I need to do. I need to just put clients at low cost index funds. They'll have a higher probability of reach, reaching their financial goals if I did that. Now, in the 1990s, you couldn't do that in the brokerage industry. You can now because of ETS, but you couldn't back then. So I, I left, I started a company and I charged a very low management fee. I charged a quarter of a percent per year to my clients uh, with a minimum fee. I mean, I charged a minimum of 2,500 per household to manage their portfolios in low cost index funds. And at the time ETFs, which were just getting started, uh, I, I was putting some clients in those funds as well. Plus there was a company called Dimensional Fund Advisors who I became interested in and started using a couple of their funds, which are, quantitative funds, but uh, they somewhat like index funds, but not exactly. So I did all of this uh, and that was very successful for 17 years and I ended up selling the company to a, a, a business partner and uh, leaving the asset management industry. And now I am just doing an hourly fee model. So I people who want my advice on how they should self-manage their own portfolios, I, I work with them and, and just get charged an hourly fee. So that's my whole uh, background. Yeah, was, was it difficult to make that transition? I, you recognized in the in the broker space that it was very transactional, uh, I, basically selling for uh, uh, Wall Street, selling Wall Street products, uh, and then making that transition to investment advisory where low cost index funds and uh, more of a fiduciary relationship with your client. Uh, you were pretty early on that, uh, that transaction at, or that transition at the time must have been a little bit jarring. Did you? How did you grow that first business? I mean, there weren't that many people around doing what you were trying to do. Is that true? Uh, yes, that's true. I was able to convert eighty percent of my clients and eighty percent of my assets from the traditional brokerage firm that I was with over to the independent uh, broker dealer. I, I used Schwab as a custodian and then ultimately used TD and Fidelity and uh, some other companies. But so I, I was able to take 80% with me. And uh, that was a start, even at a quarter of a, a percent per year. I think I took $30 million with me, uh, which was a lot back then, <laughs> quite frankly. It's not much now, but it was back then. And so that gave me enough revenue. I mean, I, I worked out of my living room. My wife did the paperwork for the clients and you know, we made it work. Um, and then I got very lucky. I mean, I published my first book uh, and I then published another book, but I got very lucky. Uh, Jonathan Clements from the Wall Street Journal, uh, who was working there at the time, uh, had an article called uh, Getting Going. And he had heard about my idea of charging clients a quarter of a percent management fee and putting their portfolios in index funds. And uh, he was unique. Uh, and he contacted me. And one day he said, hey, this is Jonathan Clements from the Wall Street Journal. And I, of course, I didn't believe him. <laughs> but he, uh, he said, I'd, I'd like to talk with you about what you're doing. And, and so I told him what I was doing and what I believed and how I had my epiphany and you know, which direction I was going. And he published it. Well, that put me on the map. I mean, it the phone didn't stop ringing for months after that. I had to bring on a, a junior partner. I had to get office space, you know, <laughs> things, things started. I, I went from call it 50 million under management to 500 million under management, literally in, in two years. 
and uh, then eventually grew it up to 1.5 billion. But uh, you know, I, I guess I got very fortunate that yes, I was early, and I was charging a reasonable fee. What for portfolio management? I wasn't doing financial planning. I wasn't doing taxes. I wasn't doing estate planning. I was just doing portfolio management to come up with a asset allocation of what you need and put it together and manage it for you and send you reports and you know answer questions that you had. So um, it worked. And uh, you know I was new. Uh, it was all new. I mean, there was nobody out there doing any low fee asset management at the time. So it, it grew very quickly. And how did you settle on uh, 25 basis points? Is that what you... Oh no, that that's an interesting story. <laughs> All right, so so here's how it worked. You're you're familiar with American funds, right? Uh, American funds. So when I was in the brokerage industry, and I was thinking I can't stay here anymore, I want to go start my own money management company, but I need to charge a certain amount to my clients. The people from American funds, the the, the reps came into the uh, office one day and. Um, I learned that if you put $1 million into American funds and you diversify it among the bond funds and the Euro-Pacific fund and the growth fund of America and so forth, but you kept the whole $1 million in American funds that the clients paid no commission to get in. And you as the advisor on the account got a quarter of a percent trailing commission, so 25 basis points. So I asked the American funds rep, I said, what do you think at your company, American, what do you think that 25 basis point 12B1 fee is for? And he said, well, what we think is, is for you to talk with your clients and tell them, uh, you know, what, what we might be thinking here at American funds and, you know, help them with their asset allocation and help them, you know, implement their portfolio. And we think that's a fair fee for doing that type of service. And I said, you know what? I think so too. So when I launched my company, that's what I charged, a quarter of a percent, but I did have that $2,500 per year minimum family cost. So, you know, I was looking for clients who had at least, you know, 500,000, but 500, you know, a million dollars was what my real target market was. Yeah, and was there, uh, I mean, American funds, obviously active managed uh, mutual funds. Uh, and, and you came to the uh, uh, epiphany, you say that uh, uh, passive indexing was a more sure path for clients to meet their goals than, than active management. Right. I mean, I, I used American funds, 25 basis points, but everything went into index funds. So, um, but that, that's where I got the quarter of a percent from was from the 12B1 fee trailer that a broker would get if they put a million dollars with generally one fund company. Mm -hmm. Um, for uh, servicing, uh, you know, servicing the client. I mean, that's what it's supposed to be for. That's what that 25 basis points is supposed to be for, that trailing commission. So I, that's what I took when I started my company, and but I just did all index fund investing instead. Yeah. And then and it, and it took off. You so say you uh, grew that company to about one and a half billion dollars under management uh, before you sold it. Why did you decide to sell it? What was the uh, reason to make a change at that point? Well, that, that's a long story. And unfortunately, I, I'm the worst person in the world if you want to talk to somebody about how to do a, a transaction and sell your company, because I ended up going through two arbitrations with, uh, with, with two different uh, partners at the time. Uh, and 
I, I was getting close to 60 years old. Basically, all of my wealth was in the company. I needed to exit and, and get a, you know, secure my retirement, if you will. Because you just sure. never know. Yeah. yeah. But um, it, it was the ugliest transaction with one partner. And we ended up in arbitration over it. And then the other partner was even worse that I ended up bringing on a private equity investor to take the place of the partner, the first partner. And, and that ended up in even a worse arbitration. I won both arbitrations and I ended up getting bought out. But I have to tell you, if you want advice on, um, on how to sell your company, you could either A, uh, you know, you could come to me and I could tell you the really ugly dark side of what not to do <laughs> because I did everything wrong that you could possibly imagine. Um, or you could maybe go to somebody who did it successfully and get a better story. But um, ended up coming out okay. And uh, I got a short non-compete. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I got a fair valuation, but uh, now, again, I, now I'm just helping people hourly and I, I enjoy doing that. Yeah. Yeah. What, was it just the, the issue of, um, you know, you're an advisor, you uh, enjoy helping clients. That's where you get your, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the satisfaction from, uh, but running a $1.5 billion firm is more like running a small business. Well, yeah, this was the problem. I really enjoyed working with the clients. And, and when you're, when you've got a staff of 15 or 16 people uh, and you're, you're no longer doing that, you're, you become a, an administrator, you know, you become making decisions on, you know, how much toilet paper you should, you should buy and stock up on. I mean, it, it's, it's not the same thing. It's not fun. So, I mean, you have to have that mentality. I mean, if your mentality is I want to build my business into something that I can sell, then you've, you're going to end up going down the road of giving up working with clients and you're going to be working with employees and business partners and lawyers and accountants. And it's, it's really not fun. It wasn't fun for me. It, it was, I mean, I, it, you know, some people have, a knack for doing it. And, and they, they enjoy doing that. I didn't. So I wanted to get back to working with clients and I, I couldn't, I was, I, I just couldn't get back to working with clients. My business partners weren't going to allow that. And I said, this is not working. I'm, I, I just want to sell. I'll sell to you. And then I'll, and then I'll be able to do what I want to do. And, and that's ultimately what happened. It took five years and two arbitrations, but that's ultimately what happened. Well, it was part of the problem also, and we'll move on from this, but uh, I think a lot of advisors uh, have this issue where they build a business and they are the face of the business, right? The clients are there largely because of the advisor. Uh, you know, they, they know the advisor, maybe they've read the advisor's books, they've uh, followed the advisor on social media or read the, uh, the listen to the radio, whatever it is. Uh, they are there for the advisor. So that makes it a little bit harder to sell a firm, right? Or to, uh, uh, to, to, in a way, kind of to monetize the practice, right? Because- I mean, we could talk about this. This is where the, you know, if anybody was going to sell their practice, they want to contact me. I could help them figure out what the value of their business is. Because if you're that person, and I was that person, I mean, 100% of the clients who came to the company were because of me. Um, they, they, none of, no one else in the company brought in any, there were no other attractors to the business except for what I did and, and, and who I was. So it lowered the valuation and you would expect it because since I've left, the company has actually lost clients and lost assets. Um, not that they're not managing money, you know, the way that I set it up, but I'm not there anymore. And so that 
weighs on the valuation. It weighs on, on, on what it's going to be uh, worth. I mean, this is a whole different aspect. Uh, I don't know if you wanted to talk about all of that, but when you're coming to business valuation, it certainly plays um, a role in, uh, in what the value of the company would be. Yeah, I think it's for a lot of advisors. It's it's hard to you know kind of get past that idea that you know it's uh it's their company, it's their name on the door, their it's it's their uh, uh, creation. They built this thing, uh, and it's hard to step out of the way in order to allow the business to grow a little bit without their name on the door. So it's possible to monetize it and the, the fuller valuation. It's a it's a tough line to walk. Yeah, it, it certainly is. It, it certainly is the the founders dilemma right yeah. problem yeah. a dilemma so found i mean it, I, I went through it and i think any, any other founder who did what i did would go through the whole you think that it's worth three times what it actually is worth and uh, or at least twice what it's actually worth and and you fight in this and that to try to get your business partners to give you you know more money but in reality in retrospect now that i look back you know the people who did the valuation on the business were right i mean when I, if i'm not there anymore the business stopped growing and, uh, and that's what happened with the business that I had. I mean, it literally stopped growing and actually went the other direction. So, you know, you need to have those rainmakers, you know, in, in the business to make the business have value. And if the rainmaker is just going to cash out and walk out, which is what I did, the valuation is going to be lower and it should be. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll, I'll admit that I first uh, was introduced to your writings uh, as a uh, long time ago as an investment writer at Forbes magazine as, as an advocate of index fund investing, uh, index-based investing. You, and you've been uh, loud and prolific on that topic. What prompted the, uh, you know, taking that, you can run your advisory firm that way and, uh, you know, passive investing you see is best for your clients. And then sort of building though a, a platform to kind of advocate nationally if you i guess nationally globally even i mean for that style of investing right it uh you you feel passionately about it you feel strongly about it uh even beyond just the borders of your own firm well yeah just before i did this interview i did a interview for uh poland the country of poland uh, financial advisors they there is a conference going on i was the keynote speaker and i was talking about this exact thing so yeah it's not just nationally it's globally uh, trying to uh, educate advisors on this is the best interest of your client. Look, an advisor is not supposed to be out there trying to beat the market. That, that's not what an advisor does. That might be what an asset manager does, you know, but that's not what an advisor does. An advisor is supposed to advise the clients on how to reach their financial goals. And, and the, the data on that is very clear that the highest probability of doing that is to not do active management, is to do just passive investing in a fairly simple portfolio and, and then you advise the clients on, on many other things. I and mean, that's what an advisor should be doing. If the advisor is being hired to beat the market, they're not advising anybody. They're, uh, that's a different business. And uh, I, I don't consider that advising, quite frankly. Well, there are certainly a lot of advisors out there who do run their own portfolios and, and do uh, try to do just that, right? I mean, I, I, for whatever reason, I mean, the, the industry is attracted uh, uh, professionals who see themselves as uh, market-beating portfolio managers understand the markets. and That's true. They, they yeah. do see themselves as that, but it's just not true that they actually are that. Okay, that's what the marketing spin is. 
marketing spin is, yes, we're going to outperform. But in reality, they do not. In reality, even if they did outperform, all of that alpha that they might get is just going to go to them in the form of a fee. It's not going to go to the clients. I mean, this is just reality. This is just math. It's nuts and bolts. They can't. It can't happen. Alpha goes to the manager if there is any. So they're not advisors. They're not advising clients. They're you know, they might as well just be an active mutual fund that's trying to outperform something. It's, it's a different business. I'm an advisor. I left the brokerage industry because I, was, I, I didn't see that as being any value to the clients. I thought that I need to advise the clients so that they can meet their financial objectives, not that I can meet my financial objectives. And so uh, I, I see it as two different worlds. Yeah. And not to mention that, that, you know, the there's also the, the phenomenon of if someone does beat the markets, you know, two or three years, no guarantee. In fact, probably likely they won't in the future, right? It's uh, difficult. Sure. The style, the style momentum that, if, let's say, if you're, you know, your bias is towards growth or value or whatever, there, there are style trends that, that occur for a while, but they don't persist. And, but the fee, the only thing that persists are the fees. And the fees ultimately cut into whatever alpha there might be. Clients literally underperform and the taxes are generally higher. And there's a revolving door. I mean, if you're trying to outperform, you know, you live by the sword, die by the sword. If you don't outperform, then, and you're giving the clients accurate performance monitors where you're accurately measuring your performance against an accurate benchmark, which a lot of people don't, but if you did, then, uh, you know, the clients will see they're underperforming and they'll, because you're trying to outperform, and you didn't, they're going to go somewhere else. Well, that's, that's not what you want to have as an advisor. You, you want to have long-term clients where you can help them with their financial needs over decades and maybe even their family over decades. Well, that has nothing to do with outperforming the markets. It has to do with coming up with the proper asset allocation. It has to do with keeping fees low. It has to do with taxes and helping them with their taxes and ensuring that you have good tax management in your portfolio. But it doesn't have anything to do with beating the markets. Yeah, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. There's a uh, uh, education component to this with the general public, with the clients as well, too, right? Because I can tell you, uh, I you know go to uh, parties or speak to people, civilians not in the industry, uh, you know, who uh, who use financial advisors, and usually their first question to me or or you know what they say to me is, you know, well, I, I have to get rid of my advisor because you know he's just not uh, I'm, I'm, my my portfolio is going nowhere. Uh, or, you know, oh, my advisor's great. My portfolio has just really taken off. Uh, so there is still, I think, a, a layer of client side uh, that thinks of financial advisors as the person who runs their portfolios. Well, you can run the portfolio, but again, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. If you put the expectation in the client's mind that they're going to get a certain rate of return, uh, whether that rate of return is over the market or not. But if, if you get, tell them that, if you imply or infer or, or tell them that you're going to try to outperform and that, you know, we think this sector is good and we're going to do a rotation from here to there and all this nonsense that goes on in that industry for the purpose of marketing more than anything, and it doesn't happen, the client's going to hold you to it. But what if you didn't do that? What if you said, hey, look, I'm, you know, I'm no magician. I mean, we all know that the markets outperform most advisors that are trying to do that. The markets outperform most active managers that are trying to beat the market. Let's just get the return of the market and I'll help you with everything else. I charge you a low fee for running your portfolio to get you the return of the markets. 
and then I'll charge you another fee for whatever in-depth advice that you need on financial planning or taxes or estate planning or whatever else that it is that um, that you need that is it really doesn't have anything to do with AUM of the portfolio, but has to do with you know you and your family and and getting you to where you need to go. And this gets us to what you're doing today, and uh, uh, where a lot of I think the the public conversation or the industry conversation is going now around compensation models for financial advisors, and and they still linger in that uh, you know AUM based compensation models. Uh, most advisors, I think the average still is a little over one percent of AUM. Uh, even for folks who call themselves financial planners, uh, you know, and, and you are very critical of that. What's your argument there? I am, but I'm a hypocrite as well. So you just got to realize that when I was uh, in the brokerage industry, we charged clients uh, two and a quarter percent for an equity portfolio. And uh, I, I managed the fixed income myself. So that was, that was less. But I, when I, again, when I went out to my own company, I charged a quarter of a percent. I find that you know, my thinking over the last 20 years is, you know, what does it cost to manage a client's portfolio? What is my overhead to manage clients' portfolios? And what is a fair fee for that component of what we do? And that's, I think the 25 basis points that I came up with uh, more than 20 years ago is about accurate. In fact, ironically, uh, when um, Betterment started and Wealthfront started, uh, Betterment was at 15 basis points and Wealthfront was at 25. And then Betterment went up to 25 basis points. So they, they actually came up to the 0.25. 0.25 seems to be the right number. That was the right number. That, that American Fund's idea of 25 basis points to you know, maintain the relationship with the client, it, it was, is actually a good number. That sh that's the, what it should be for managing money. Now, above and beyond that, if you're going to spend a lot of time with the clients talking about financial planning and talking about tax management and doing other things that are not directly related to AUM, uh, that can be a different fee. And I think there, there should be a different fee, in my opinion. And should be uh, delineated as such on a Form ADV, right? Uh, uh, it should be almost like a, a menu of sorts. Uh, you know, here's your... Uh, portfolio management fee over here, and here are the fees that we're charging for all these other services that we're providing. I think so. That's my view. I mean, it could be a flat fee. It could be a monthly uh, retainer, or like XY Planning is doing a subscription fee, some of them. Yeah, something like that. But portfolio management, which is ongoing, day-to-day, -day, you've got to download all these positions. You've got to reconcile it. You've got to ensure that cash gets managed and all this other stuff. That can be an extra fee. A quarter of a percent is realistic and as far as what that costs. Because again, it's a, Vanguard, for example, does this at 30 basis points. So 25, you could say, goes to the portfolio management side and five basis points a year is to answer basic questions that people may have when they uh, call in. So you know, if you're going to do both and you're going to combine them together, you know, 30 basis points might be appropriate. But if you're going to separate them, then 25 for the management and uh, sub dollar amount or monthly subscription or something for the other stuff is, uh, or hourly, which is what I charge. And I don't manage money anymore. I just, I just do the other side. I'm just doing the advice side now. So I'm just doing an hourly fee is appropriate. Yeah. You're just, doing, you're, yeah, you're just doing advice now, correctly. I mean, you're uh, right now you're just, you're giving clients advice on an hourly basis 
uh, to help them kind of uh, allocate their assets. Is that true? Yeah. I, what I do is I do what's called a portfolio second opinion, which is a $925 fee for uh, two hours of conversation with the client. But before I do the two hours of conversation, I'll collect all of their data. So I'll look at all of their accounts. I'll look at their asset allocation. They fill out a client profile uh, of you know, their needs and their goals and their family and incomes and things like that. So I collect all this information from them. I look it all over and then I call them on the phone and we have a two hour conversation about everything. During that two hours, I'll come up with We'll, we'll discuss everything. First hour is just going to be me getting to know who they are. I don't even get into asset allocation or, or the investments. I, I, I just talk about, you know, we just talk about them. Might even be an hour and a half. Normally, it's a, a married couple. It's husband and wife are both on the line. And then and the second part of that, which probably is only about 30 minutes, is let's talk about your asset allocation. Let's talk about the investments that you have and what changes you may or may not make. And uh, how, do, how can we make this better and more tax efficient and so forth? And at the end of that, uh, when I hang up, I'll, I'll write a letter, uh, might be three, four pages about all the highlights that we talked about with very specific, uh, you know, advice about funds and how they might do it. And I send that to them along with an invoice for $925. That's it. We're done. Now they have to go and implement it on their own, or if they have an advisor, most don't. Most people are, are self-managing, but if they did, uh, they could go to the advisor with it. But uh, that's it. Now, if they come back after a year or two, it, it's a $450 an hour fee. Now, I charge them $450 an hour, but in reality, it's, I, I get less than that because I really have to go back in and, and reread everything that I did prior to the call. So it probably takes me two hours for every hour that, uh, that I work with them. But um, that's it. You know, that, that's what I'm doing now. If they decide they want somebody else to manage their portfolio for them, then they can hire somebody to do it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I advise them that they should negotiate down to, you know, a reasonable flat fee to have that done or, or a low AUM fee. And, but most people are not. Most people are, are self-managing because we can make the portfolios very simple and it's easy to do. I, do they come back to you for ongoing maintenance of those portfolios for rebalancing as they kind of age or get closer to a financial goal? Is there some rebalancing of the portfolio that's required that uh, you would advise on as well? It's not a dentist chair. I don't sit there and say, okay, in one year, you're going to come back. Here's the date. I don't do any of that. It's basically, here you go. Thank you for using my services. If you need me again, contact me, we'll get you on the schedule for another hour. Some people come back to me every quarter. Some people come back once a year. Some people never come back. They, they got what they need and they're done. So it depends on the client. Uh and I think what a lot of advisors would be interested in knowing is, uh, you know, going to the subscription fee or hourly based fee or a, a fee for service uh, away from the IAUM. How do you, how did you fall on this? You know, what, what does it charge an hour uh, for two hours? And I, I charge, I, I charge 450 an hour. How, how did, That's what how, I charge. How did you, how did you fall on that? Well, it was very simple. I asked my friend Alan Roth what he charged, and he charged four fifty an hour. So I said, "Okay, that's what I'm going to charge." <laughs> so I guess we go to him and ask him how he fell on that. Uh, on that well, I mean, Alan, I know how Alan got there is because he had so much business. He kept raising his rate because he was hoping he wouldn't get so much business. And I probably I have the same problem, by the way. I mean, I'm booked up all the way through the end of the year, and I've got a waiting list of probably uh, eighty people for next year. So it's. The, the demand for this type of a service is huge. It, I, there are so many people out there who just want occasional advice and just want to pay 
you know, one-time flat fee for somebody to look over their portfolio, look over their stuff, or, you know, be able to go to somebody for an hour. And I mean, it's a great business model. If, if you're willing to take a new client on every day and spend a, uh, an hour with an existing client, you just add it up. I mean, it's about $1,300 a day times five days. So that's what, 6,300 times if you work three days, three, three weeks, right? Three weeks a, uh, a month, uh, that would be about $20,000 times, call it, you know, 11 months, it's $220,000 a year. And that's not really working very hard. You're only working, you know, three, day, three weeks of a month and, and, and you're taking a, a month off. So I, I easily you could make $300,000, $350,000 a year if you were a young advisor and you were aggressive doing this. I mean, it, but what there isn't, what, what, what's lacking in this model is what I had before with my asset management company, which is building equity. When you have an asset management company, you're building equity in the company as you build up assets and you could sell that. This you can't sell. I mean, you know, once I stop doing this, there's nothing left. I, I can't sell it. So I have to put money away for myself for retirement. It, it's a different model. Um, it's more of a CPA model, you know, more of an attorney model. It's not ongoing asset management model. So, you know, it's a trade-off. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think more and more advisors are, are, are seeing that and, and making that move largely because, you know, as we've all seen asset management uh, uh, become commoditized and and, and cheap and, uh, uh, and and that's not where the value is for an advisor. I think everyone agrees with that. Yet there's still a large swath of advisors that remain that retain that one percent AUM. And their argument would be, uh, and I think you've heard this argument many times: the size of the portfolio reflects the complexity of the client. So uh, that, that that is complete and utter nonsense. Absolutely false. That I've had clients who have twenty million dollars; they have one portfolio. It's and I've got clients who have five hundred thousand; they've got. And portfolios. So, you know, it, it is complete nonsense to say that, oh, you know, I have to get paid more because it's so much harder to manage a, a $3 million account than a one. But that is utter, complete garbage. It's not the reason. The reason is they make a lot more money off the $3 million client than they do off the $1 million client. I know that. I mean, I've been in the business a long, long time and they can say whatever they want, uh, but it's not true. It, it, about that stuff. It just isn't. I, I, I know the score. I, I know the value. I, I know, you know I've been around a long time and I've done all kinds of models, the commission model, the AUM model, now the hourly model. I know, I know what's going on out there. And let me tell you, it's all about return to advisor. Uh, that, that, that's what it's about. I mean, if, you're, if you've got a $2 million client and you're charging them $20,000 a year, you're not doing anything different than you are for the $1 million client that you're charging 10,000. The only thing that's different is you're making $10,000 more profit. That's it. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, the, the AUM model still exists in a fiduciary framework. Uh, and I, I've often, you know, uh, wondered, you know, sometimes maybe the best advice for a client is to uh, pay off a bunch of debt. Well, for an advisor, would that necessarily be the advice that they would give to a client? Because then that, you know, money goes away from their uh, pot. Uh, and it lowers the portfolio that they're managing and therefore lowers their fee from that client. Is, can, can an AUM-based fee exist inside a fiduciary framework? 
It's difficult because let's say you have a client who leaves a company and they have a 401k. You can't manage the 401k, but they have a million dollar 401k and they're going to go to work for another company. It happens all the time in the tech industry. A lot of these companies like Google, they have great 401ks, really good 401ks. You could roll your 401k from Facebook or wherever you were working uh, right over to the Google 401k. You get great investment options there. But if you're with an advisor, is the advisor going to recommend that? Again, they can't manage the 401k. They can't get paid on it. Or are they going to recommend, oh, you need to roll this into an IRA? Well, what happens if it rolls into an IRA? Now the advisor can get paid on it. But is that what a fiduciary should do, knowing that that Google 401k is a fantastic, very low cost 401k, ideal, has a lot of great index options. And that's and there's a lot of other benefits to having money in a 401k, including uh, uh with the 401k, you don't have, uh, you know, it's sheltered because it's an ERISA plan where an IRA is not sheltered, uh, at least depending on the state and depending on the situation. But the bottom line is that the right thing to do is to say to the client, well, no, you've got this Facebook 401k, you're going to Google, take that million dollars and go from Facebook 401k right over to the Google 401k. But it's really hard for an advisor who's doing AUM to do that because they're not going to get the money. They want the money. They want the IRA rather than the 401k so they can bill on it. And okay, that's not being a fiduciary. It, it's difficult. There was a case in California, another case in California, where a client took a, or an advisor who's an AUM advisor. This just recently happened and it was in the press. Uh, client had a variable annuity that they paid a big commission to get in. Well, now you could do sort of no load variable annuities and you can get paid an AUM fee on it. So the, the advisor said, oh, get rid of that variable annuity and roll it into this other no load variable annuity. Well, so that's what the client did. The client paid an exit fee of something like three or 4% to get out of the variable annuity to go into the no load variable annuity. But now that advisor is charging 1% per year AUM on that no load variable annuity. That wasn't the right thing to do. It, you know, the client paid a big commission to get in. And, and by the way, the, the, the California Insurance Bureau went after the insurance company that the money went into, ironically, uh, because it, it was just not the, the correct thing to do. They haven't yet gone after the advisor who did it. Well, my point is it's, it's incentives, right? Like um, Charlie Munger said, show me the incentive and I'll show you the plan. In other words, if the incentive is to get money under management, get assets under management, that's that's the advisor's incentive. There's a bias. There's a bias. So, you know, to separate it out, to say, okay, I'm going to have one firm, I'm going to pay a quarter of a percent to to manage my money, and I have another firm where I'm going to pay a, a certain amount to just for the advice, I think that's a better solution. It, it is. No. You keep saying that you know one percent is sort of the rule of thumb. Yeah, it, and you know what? It's going to stay there. The, the people who are one percent are not going to change. They're not going to switch over to this model. It's just not going to happen. Uh, their their overhead has reached some point of uh, you know unable to do that. I mean, the funny thing about the advisor business is about a thirty percent net profit margin, no matter what fee you charge. So if you're charging a quarter of a percent like I did, I had a 30% profit margin. If you charge 1%, you have a 30% profit margin. If you charge 1.5%, you have a 30% profit margin because your, your expenses just, just grow to that 30% level, it seems. Well, the people who are doing 1% are not going to change. Just like the people who are doing transactional business in the brokerage industry, that continues to exist, even though a lot of people left the transactional brokerage industry and went to the AUM model. 
it's it's not going to go away. The, those advisors are not going to go away. They might eventually retire out of the business, but the new model for the new advisors, you know, you think about it a little bit more. The data that Michael Kitsis is showing is that the younger people are much more aware of these things and they want choices. So if you're a young advisor or thinking about breaking away, thinking about starting your own business or how are you going to charge, you really got to think about these alternative models because that's the direction the new business uh, is going. The millennials, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever, they're, they're going that direction. That's where the new money is going. Now, it's going to take decades before it changes to that, but, but it's growing. So it's just another model. And I think it's the model of the future, but people who are currently in the 1% AUM or doing commissions, they're not going to change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think of the, the, the hybrid model, right? Because I think we hear most advisors are uh, uh, hybrid advisors doing a little bit of commission work, a little bit of AUM work, uh, you know, planning over on the AUM side and maybe like selling some insurance or something on the, on the commission side. Is that uh, uh, deceptive or, or fair? Or what do you think of the hybrid advisor? Well, a recent study shows that the hybrid advisors will be biased towards whatever gives them the highest fee. Um, and it's, it, there's a real issue there with, with hybrid advisors because they're not acting. Well, one day they're, they're, they're saying, oh, I'm a fiduciary. And, and then the next day they're saying, oh, but not to this account. So uh, it, 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 it's very difficult um, if you get into an arbitration with an advisor who says, oh, well, well, you're, you're saying, saying that I should be a fiduciary on all the accounts. However, no, not really, because I'm only charging AUM on this account. So I'm only a fiduciary on that account. On these other accounts, I'm not a fiduciary. So you can't you know, get a pound of flesh from me because I wasn't a fiduciary to begin with. It's really ugly. Uh, it, it's difficult. Let's put it that way. I, yeah, when I was leaving the brokerage industry, I had the choice of doing that. But we call it dual hat. I would, you know, you mean in other words, you're being regulated by both the SEC and you're being re- regulated by uh, Finra. Uh, and uh, I, I talked to a lot of people, and n- nine out of ten of them were saying, "I'm, I don't want to be regulated by by both. I'll be regulated by the SEC, but I don't want to be regulated by Finra and the SEC." So I said, "Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go that direction." So I just went with. You know, AUM uh, to be regulated by the SEC. At the time, it was 25 million was the minimum to be regulated by the SEC. And um, it was the right choice. I left behind in the brokerage industry a lot of those 25 basis point trailers that I wasn't able to get anymore. Uh, but that was okay. You know, it, it, I, I made the right decision to just go with AUM as the, when I was managing money. And um, I understand what you're saying, though. It, again, show me the, incentive and I'll, I'll show you the plan well i think for, for clients too it muddies the waters right and uh, i you know i think another argument that comes back at uh, your uh, your argument often is well hey everything is disclosed so as long as we have full disclosure of what we're doing uh then the client is making their own choice uh by their own free will uh and therefore i'm deserving of what i'm being paid uh because look everything is disclosed uh, how do you react to that argument? Where, well, you're an advisor, right? You have a fiduciary duty to advise the client on everything, including your own fee. Uh, look, when you when you're in the brokerage industry, you're supposed to provide the client with a prospectus, right? 
before you sell them a front-end loaded mutual funds. And so you send the client a prospectus. Do they read it? No, of course they don't read it, okay? One of the reasons they don't read it is because you're their advisor and they trust you. They trust that you're doing what's in their best interest. So I'm not gonna read it. If you tell me that 1% is the quote unquote standard AUM fee for an advisor, I'm gonna believe you. If you don't tell me that there's a lot of other options out there that are a lot less expensive than me, which you're not going to say, then you know I'm not gonna know. But it does take a while for people who have got money and been through the hoop a few times to begin to realize what's what's going on. And, uh, and that's why I say half of my clients that I get are people who have left their 1% AUM advisor and now have decided that they're paying way too much and that they are, uh, they want to reduce their cost. And uh, so, um, you know, why is it that advisors who charge say 1% will go to the end of the earth to explain to the client that they save them one basis point by going to this ETF rather than to that ETF, but they won't even discuss lowering their own 1% AUM fee. As a fiduciary, you're supposed to do it all. Yeah, so disclosure is tricky to, uh, to, to get around that. Should, should the SEC be doing more uh, about uh, uh, looking at some of these uh, uh, issues? So, and one thing that brokers will say is that, you know, well, FINRA is actually a bit of a harsher regulator to a lower standard on the broker side than the SEC is to uh, investment advisors. Uh, well, I think that the SEC has a lot bigger fish to fry than whether advisors are charging 1% AUM. It, it's not onerous to charge 1% AUM. It's high. And, you know, productivity tools out there should have lowered the cost to half that by now, down to 50 basis points. But it hasn't. Uh, is this something the SEC is going to be concerned with? No, they're not. Uh, not any more than if you're in the brokerage industry with FINRA and you decide to put people in a front-loaded mutual fund where you get paid 5%. Is, that's high. It is. But is something FINRA going to be worried about? No. So uh, no, there, there's not going to be any regulation around this. It's more of a moral, ethical issue. And you know, again, each advisor who decides to come into the industry is going to have to decide what they stand for and you know, how do they want to be paid? I, I'm saying it, just doing hourly. If you just do a regular 40 hour work week, you're going to make 250,000 to 300,000 a year. Uh, if you need to make more than that, then you could do AUM and uh, you won't make more than that doing AUM, but you will have a payday at the end. Right, right, yeah. Uh, so I know we're getting up to the end of the hour here, and I've, I've kept you far too long already. But I do have one more quick question for you. Uh, you know, a lot of advisors are talking about, uh, well, the way that we're going to justify our fees is, you know, we're going to differentiate ourselves, and one of the ways that we're going to do that is to uh, advise our clients around ESG issues. What are your thoughts about ESG investing uh, as a as a kind of a way to uh, either a align clients' values with their portfolios, or alternatively? Uh, a way for advisors to charge more uh, for the same basket of goods? Where, where, do you, where do you come down? Well, I can tell you from working with about 250 clients a year, roughly, 200 to 250 new clients a year, I think I've had two discussions about ESG where the client brought it up. So if the advisors are bringing this up to the client, I question that. You know, question, well, what is this? Is this 
just a way of make believe added value. <laughs> I mean, what are we what are we really talking about? If the client brings it up and says, "Look, I'm really a believer in ESG," okay, fine. You know, Vanguard has some great, very low cost ESG U.S. stock market, U.S. international market, bond market, international market. I mean, you could you could have a portfolio of uh, ESG. Uh, ETFs, you know, a simple portfolio of four or five funds. So if the client wants that, you can do it. I, again, I, I can recall two conversations out of the hundreds of conversations I had where, where the individual clients actually asked for it. Now, maybe it's bigger with younger people, but I do work with a whole broad range of people, younger and older. And, uh, you know, like I said, it, it, it's available in a low cost index fund model. If, if this is what the client wants, I mean, I don't bring it up. Personally, I've seen I, ESG is is just a the new word for socially responsible. Back, I don't know, thirty years ago it was a socially responsible index funds and uh, uh, socially conscious index funds and all that. Well, now now it has a new buzzword. It's called ESG, and it's all brand new. Uh, yeah, okay, you know what's old is new again. It never really took off back then. It seems like it's catching on now more. I I don't. As far as the rate of return, I mean, there's, there's nothing out there in academia that shows that these things are going to produce any kind of rate of return. As far as the better than, let's say, the market, as far as the fees go, you, you know, the fees are always going to be higher because this is a product. This is a product that you know, companies are putting out there that have higher fees than your basic three basis point index fund. So you're going to pay more for it. And then that's, that's the big incentive for the investment industry is you, they get more fees from it. Um, is it any harder to manage an ESG portfolio for an index fund provider than it is to manage a three basis point total market fund? No, it's not any harder, you know, I mean, but, but they get more money from it. So, uh, you know, it, it is a, a way of recapturing a lot of the lost active management fees that fund companies have lost over the years. And ESG is a way to maybe recapture some of that, uh, but I don't see it as a, uh, a way to make more money. But I mean, if you believe in it, there's ways of doing it in a very low cost way. Like I said, Vanguard has some really nice low cost ESG index funds that you could use. And, and uh, so you could do it. Yeah. What, what about the rise of, uh, and again, I, I said that was the last question, but I got one more. Uh, the, the There's a lot of noise being made now about how to get clients into uh, private funds, uh, alternative investments, uh, not equities, uh, not market traded uh, investments. Uh, and they make this argument because they say the, the, the universe of uh, securities, marketable securities is, is shrinking uh, and that there's a lot of opportunity uh, outside the markets, uh, in early stage companies, venture capital, I guess. I don't know. I don't know where it comes from, but uh, the notion of going outside the, the traditional stock market or bond market for investments is something that seems to be on the rise. Is this just another kind of money grab by the asset management industry or is there something there that that maybe there is uh, advantages to clients for getting into that. You know, we could talk about this. I, I basically have three things. Number one, the exchanges, like the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ are very much aware that people are doing private equity rather than coming public. And they are making changes to try to get more companies coming public rather than going down the private equity side. And, and that might change. I mean, seeing SPACs, right? SPACs are, you know, like a lot of bad name, but the fact is they actually have helped bring a lot of smaller companies uh, public that maybe would not have been able to come public. So, um, you know, you're seeing the pushback from the exchanges to get more publicly listed companies anyway. So that that's one thing. Second thing is 
anytime you deviate away from the indexes, you're, you're, you're going to incur cost. It might be an illiquidity cost. It certainly is a fee cost. It, in, and this is going to drag down returns. It, it can't be that everybody can go out and do private equity investing and outperform the market. I mean, it just doesn't work that way, right? I mean, if all this stuff is available to the general public, it's not the good stuff, right? <laughs> the good stuff is going to go to Yale University. <laughs> it's not going to go to you. Uh, so, you know, you're paying a lot of money for it. You're going to get sort of a mediocre result. But, but the third thing is, is this all just about complexity as job security? And you, know, you talked about ESG, you talk about these you know, alternative investments. I mean, what are advisors just loading up portfolios or talking about this stuff and loading it up just for the fact that complexity is job security. If you make the client's portfolio complex, if you put a lot of stuff in there that they don't understand and you give them some mumble jumble about, you know, Monte Carlo simulation, efficient market theory, efficient frontier, yada, 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 uh, all, all of this optimization of blah, 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 blah. Uh, that that the clients are just going to throw up their hands and say, you know, I mean, you're the expert. I, I don't really understand what you just said, but it sure sounds good. Here's my money. Um, you know, go ahead and charge me uh, the fee. I mean, this uh, complexity is job security. And is that what this is really all about? I mean, is it really all about getting the clients a higher rate of return? The answer is no, because like I said before, alpha goes to the manager. Alpha goes to the manager. Any kind of excess return that might actually be generated, if it actually isn't, the probability of excess return net of all fees actually occurring is very, very low. But if it did, eventually it's the fees are going to eat it all up. So what does the client get? The client gets the return of the markets at best, at best with all of this stuff. So why not just give everybody the return of the markets and then all your clients are happy. So, you know, I, I, advisors don't have to do this. If advisors advised instead of trying to be market gurus, uh, the clients would appreciate it more if they were completely honest with the clients about everything that I just said. And this is all well documented about, you know, rates of return being low when you try to do all this stuff. If they'd be honest with the clients and say, look, there's no point in trying to go out and get a high rate of return, outperform the market. Let's just get the market returns from the stock market and the bond market and the cash market, international markets, you know, put together a nice portfolio of a few good index funds and we get a market return. And then I can help you with everything else. And I'll get paid fairly. And I'll charge you a small fee for managing that portfolio if you need management. And I'll charge you a fee for giving you advice on all the other stuff. And everybody's happy. Everybody's happy. And I think that's the direction that, you know, aware people, people who have had an epiphany or a, kind of the aha moment on this stuff, this is the direction they're going. And I, I think that young advisors need to really seriously think about this. And, and I do wonder how much of the, the sins of the industry, if they are sins, uh, are uh, masked by basically a 10-year bull market, right? Uh, you, you could basically be an AUM-based advisor and not do anything, and your business is growing at you know whatever rate it is every year. Sure, every company except my former company, which is actually losing clients and losing assets, but you're right, you're correct. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I mean, you wanna talk about rates of return going forward. You've had this bull market in stocks, which was very impressive, but the more impressive bull market has been the bull market in bonds since 1980. I mean, for 40 years, we've had a declining interest rates. And that has caused the cost of borrowing to come way down for corporations. And the 
valuations of equities to go up to 20, 22 times expected future earnings uh, today. So it's all related to interest rates. So here we are today, 40 years later, here we are today at 1.3% 10-year treasury yield. And you have to look out over the next 20 or 30 years and you say, well, if we're starting at 1.3% treasury yield and everything is related to that as far as rates of return going forward, you know, what can we reasonably expect from stocks? Well, you know, maybe a risk premium of say 4% or 4.5% over that 10-year treasury. So that might give you five or six. And then if you have an asset allocation between stocks and bonds of 60, 40, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, maybe you're looking at a 4% return. That's if there are very, very low fees and maybe inflation is going to be 2%. So maybe your real return on that is only going to be 2%, but don't forget, you got to pay taxes. So after taxes and after inflation, maybe you're making a real after tax, after inflation return of 1%. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. Now, if the value is charging 1% for this client, maybe gets the inflation rate. So I think that's all going to start to come out. Yes, bull market has covered up a lot of this stuff. And the bond market and the stock market has covered up a lot of this. It might not be the case over the next 20 years. Uh, we'll have to see. Yeah, for sure. Well, Rick, this has been great. I've kept you far too long. I, I really appreciate your time and uh, the conversation. I feel like we could talk forever uh, about this stuff, but uh, uh, we're, we're just out of time. So thank you very much for, for joining us. It's been great. Well, David, I really appreciate the opportunity and uh, ha have a great um, have a great weekend. Bye now. Yeah, you too. You too. Thanks very much. This has been the uh, Advisor Innovations Podcast from WealthManagement.com. I'm David Armstrong. Thanks for listening. This podcast is sponsored by LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and member FINRA SIPC. LPL Financial is a separate entity from and not affiliated with WealthManagement.com.